Hey folks, Jared here. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ian Ralby and we'll be discussing his article, Ukraine is Not Enough. Uh, the article covers the Russian threat to the world food supply, China's role in all of this, and more. We record this late Friday evening, March 4th. This will publish March 6th, so if there's anything we haven't counted for in between, that's the reason. This episode was edited and produced by Joshua Gruber. We are still looking for audio editors to add to our team. If you're interested, please email us at ccontrol at simsec.org with your resume. I did want to highlight a couple of developments over at the main website. In the last two months, we've launched the Flotilla Simsex Warfighting Society focused on tactics, as well as our Naval Wargaming Discord. You can find more information at simsec.org. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec Podcast Network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pot of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kim Bersman. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Hello, Hashimits, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Ian Rowley, and we're going to discuss his piece for IRConcilium.com. I think you can also find it on Politico now, uh, but we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. The piece is entitled, Ukraine is Not Enough, Just the Beginning of Russia's Assault on the World. I should add this piece was written with his co-authors, Dr. David Saud and Rohini Rowley. So, Ian, thank you for joining us. Uh, it is extremely late. Uh, we're, we're doing this uh, a little bit on the fly, working around some toddler bedtimes and some other uh, commitments that we have. But uh, would you mind introducing the audience uh, to yourself again, provide a little bit more well, about your background? Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back uh, on Sea Control. And uh, I am a maritime lawyer by background, but I've been working in maritime security for most of my career uh, and have worked with and for many different U.S. government agencies, international organizations, and uh, have worked alongside a lot of foreign navies uh, around the world. In fact, um, I, I've had the pleasure of, of working with a lot of the Black Sea navies and coast guards over the last few years, and um, pleasure to be able to share some of the uh, results of our analysis with you on, on the podcast today. Well, thank you again for coming on. We are recording this uh, Friday night. This should be up on Sunday. So, uh, you know, as you're listening to this, it's two days old. If anything is uh, changed on the ground over the course of those two days, uh, that's why the uh, that's what the time delay is. But thank you again for coming on. As a reminder, all of these opinions are our own and not representative of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So jumping straight into the piece, is it fair to say that the, the thesis here is really the intended occupation of Ukraine as part of a systemic push to control food supplies? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd say that uh, it's part of a systemic push to control food supplies so much as the intended uh, takeover of Ukraine is connected to a, a broader push to reestablish the, the borders of Russia, or at least the Russian dominance over uh, what what uh, President Vladimir Putin sees as Russia and the use and, and indeed weaponization of food supply chains is one of the tactics that he is starting to and, and will continue to use uh, to accomplish that end. Uh, he's been, uh, as has been reported, very keenly aware of old imperial Russia or the Russia Imperium. Uh, and he isn't just looking to rebuild the Soviet Union. He's looking to go back further and, and rebuild that. Um, and that is uh, a worrying uh, sign for, for what is yet to come, uh, because Ukraine is a major piece in that puzzle, but it is by no means uh, the end of it. And so what we were looking at um, is the very clear connection between sort of Russian tactics reg regarding starvation and trade policy, 
uh, as being a, a major uh, means of creating both the chaos and the dependency uh, that might leverage states to either support uh, the, the Russian efforts to, to gain sovereignty over sovereign nations and uh, at the same time to be a distraction for us, for the West. Um, and so it, it, in creating chaos, uh, he can both uh, create new, new adherence to his own cause and create uh, enough of a, a disruption to our own thinking process and our approach to uh, both resolving conflicts elsewhere and uh, resolving humanitarian crises elsewhere uh, that he can make uh, significant advances well beyond Ukraine. You also postulated that because of Russian agreements with China on oil and gas, that uh, Russia would be effectively insulated against sanctions. Uh, I think when you published this, that was probably prior to uh, the sanctions packages that have been rolled out. Do you want to revisit that sort of hypothesis based on the sanction packages that we've seen from the U.S., U.K., EU, and others? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think I would still stick to that in that uh, there's a difference between the sanctions and how they're affecting the Russian people and how they are affecting the ability of the Russian state to survive economically. Um, and that is uh, still possible, uh, despite all the crippling effects of, of the current sanctions. And so let me go back to the 4th of February, um, in fact, a, a month ago exactly from, from when we we're recording this, uh, to an agreement reached in the, the sort of margins of the, the Beijing Olympics between Russia and China. And that deal was not exclusively about oil and gas. And that is one of the important points, I think, that, that needs to be highlighted in, in what led to Russia invading Ukraine on the 24th of February. On the 4th of February, what was decided was that Russia uh, would be able to sell all of its oil and gas if it wanted to, to China. China is the biggest consumer. It is hungry for hydrocarbons. Um, and so the trade pact allows for massive purchasing uh, of, of Russian oil and gas. That is set against the backdrop that now we're seeing, as, as has been uh, occurring for now two weeks, a major shift in market dynamics such that Russia is going to struggle to continue supplying oil and gas to Europe. We've already seen changes trying to uh, to, to, to reroute uh, other supply chains to provide Europe with the uh, the necessary supplies. But just today, uh, G-Captain and, and other uh, outlets started reporting that uh, Chinese ports were still receiving uh, Russian shipments, despite all the sanctions, despite all the uh, the challenges relating to SWIFT, uh, relating to banks, the the traders and uh, the refiners were paying in cash, and they were using new types of, of cash transfer schemes uh, to be able to do that. And Russia has been at the forefront for years of alternative payment methods. They've been doing that both in the legitimate space and in the illicit space. And so the, uh, the, the leadership of Russia is extremely well-versed in illicit supply chains and illicit financial flows of gold, of all kinds of other trade-based uh, money laundering. They have done a very impressive job of piloting all kinds of new ways of getting payment. And so despite the sanctions, we aren't talking about a, a situation yet where Russia is sufficiently closed off from the world uh, so that it cannot survive economically, partly because China will continue to be a big purchaser, not only of the oil and gas, but also of the grain. And I want to come back to the grain now, because that is the, the, the sort of critical element that's been most overlooked. 
So even though the, the oil and gas is, is the main focus because it's the big money and we, we feel, as Americans, we feel the, the, the crunch at the fuel pump first, um, the, the grain piece is massive. Between Russia and Ukraine, uh, they account for about 30% of the world's output in wheat. Um, wheat is in everything from bread to pasta to, to cereal to stuff we eat every single day. Um, and so uh, this this reliance on on uh, essentially a third of the world's wheat supply between those two countries um, is is massive. They they account for a huge portion of that supply. What China managed to uh, well, what I guess Russia managed to do was change China's stance on buying Russian wheat and other grain, barley, soybeans, uh, corn, other things. Uh, and what they they had initially done uh, for years was limit the amount they could purchase to grain that was grown in the eastern portion of Russia, closest to China. Um, the 4th of February saw that completely eradicated such that they can now buy grain produced anywhere in Russia. Um, and as we are seeing, Russia's <laughs> definition may be changing in the, the coming weeks. Um, that is a critical point because China has been driving up uh, the, the, their own wheat consumption for years and also corn consumption. And while Russia is not a huge producer of corn, Ukraine is the fastest growing new producer of corn anywhere on earth. They have gone from a fairly small producer to, to accounting for 16% of the global export market uh, in, in recent years. And for a number of years, they were the number one supplier to China. The U.S. temporarily overtook them in 2021, but uh, that is likely to change regardless of, of the situation in Russia and Ukraine. Um, but Ukraine is, is very much at the forefront of, of that ability to meet Chinese demand. So uh, essentially, China can, can buy up anything Russia can produce, either on the oil and gas front or on the grain front, um, and keep the Russian economy afloat at least enough to allow for, for uh, the onward expansion of this Russian imperium. Uh, and so that is a really important sort of piece of that puzzle. So China and, and Russia are definitely uh, in, in a relationship that Putin is relying on. Uh, and that in, in many respects, uh, China is also relying on because it is, it is such a, a, a key supplier to them. And so we have we have a situation where we have to make a choice as to how we're going to treat these two you know, great powers with which we've been competing for years uh, and decide how to uh, to tr treat this new pact. So is there no way to offset the loss of Ukrainian grain production with a domestic product from the U.S. or Canada or other grain producing nations? So a number of countries have had a major decline because of climatic reasons. So drought hit uh, Canada last year and there was a 34% decline in, in its own output. Uh, that's a huge amount to, to withstand. Um, the U.S. has uh, the ability to, to somewhat surge production. But that's a time-consuming issue. We can't, we can't surge grain production quite the same way that we surge oil and gas. Uh, and we also have to think about this hemispherically. Right now, the U.S. is not producing any any more grain. Uh, the growing season uh, doesn't allow us to do that. So we are we can reshift some of the supply chains and some of the trajectories of trade flows, um, but that requires a pretty concerted effort to cooperate with other states to do that. And and one of the things that we 
argued as a, a, an approach to countering some of this is, okay, China, you, you've made your choice. You no longer need our grain supply. We're going to work with the other suppliers uh, that we're going to China on, on corn and wheat. Uh, those include France. They include Canada. They include Australia, some, some very uh, close allies and friends. Uh, and we're going to essentially take those, uh, those shipments that would have gone to China and use them to backfill the, the gap in the market created by Ukraine coming offline. Forget Russia for a moment, but, but let's, let's start with focusing on Ukraine. Going to countries like Indonesia, Yemen, Malaysia, Vietnam, um, the Gulf states in the Middle East, uh, Egypt, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, um, make sure that those key states also do not have a food supply crisis, um, but are working with this sort of conglomerate of, of suppliers to help hold Ukraine's place in the market. So we could we could build we, we could take that grain we could try to 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 maximize our our, our output and uh, you know in the coming months uh, maximize what we can export right now um, and try to uh, essentially uh, guarantee Ukraine's economic sovereignty even while their physical sovereignty is being threatened. So uh, this would be a very clear non-military way uh, to try to support the the sustained existence of Ukraine as a, as a sovereign entity. Uh, and it would also put pressure on, on China to make a choice. Are they really going to go fully uh, into this, this relationship with Russia, or are they going to feel a little bit uncomfortable about being cut out of uh, the, the more diverse market um, and, uh, and make it, make a change. Um, so that is, that is one of those, I, I think trade-based options for for how to simultaneously minimize the impact of of what could be a terrible food security crisis uh, around the world and support Ukraine's sovereignty while also potentially driving an awkward relationship between Russia and China. What is actually necessary for Rus- Russia to control access to that food supply? Do they need to occupy the entirety of Ukraine? Just maritime approaches or so uh, the the majority of the international exports uh, beyond the immediate neighbors um, go through two channels. One is the Kerch Strait. One is the Odessa Oblast. So the, the, there are 17 ports in Odessa. And those ports uh, account for a huge amount uh, of the grain transport. So if, uh, as Russia already has, they're able to get the the supply routes out of out of Ukraine to be shut either uh, as a policy matter uh, or as a matter of physical control they they can do that and they've already cut those two channels so the Kerch Strait is under the control of Russia uh, and uh, the the ports are closed commercially uh, but equally uh, Russia has positioned quite a few assets um, both military and essentially um, proxy commercial assets um, in the in the areas immediately surrounding um, Odessa. What do you believe Russia would do with control of the grain market? Is just a side benefit of this operation for them? Or is this a, a geopolitical lever in the way that Nord Stream 2 
very much a lever. And it's um, it's not dissimilar from Nord Stream 2, but it's much more expansive. Um, Russia has been taking a much more global approach for years. Um, we've seen it in a lot of different and, and somewhat strange spaces. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the last time we, we spoke, we were talking about IUU fishing. Um, IUU fishing is actually one of the areas where Russia has uh, showed up in different parts of the world, uh, the Gulf of Guinea and, and elsewhere. Um, we've seen uh, the presence of, of Russian uh, naval craft turning up in the Caribbean, in the Gulf of Guinea. There was a, a counter-piracy uh, task force sent from the Russian uh, Northern Fleet just uh, this past autumn in, in September, October. Um, and, and that got some very high-level attention after they actually uh, intervened in the piracy uh, attempt against the MSC Lucia on the 25th of October, uh, just off of uh, sort of not far from Equatorial Guinea and Sao Tome uh, in, in uh, the Gulf of Guinea. Um, and that, that uh, sort of naval presence is also uh, backed up by a much more expansive proxy presence through the, the private military company called either Wagner or Wagner, depending on uh, <laughs> your, your preference for how you pronounce it. And, um, you know, that, that, that group uh, of, of essentially little green men has, has turned up uh, in Venezuela, it's turned up all over Africa, it's turned up in Asia. Um, and so Russia has had tentacles around the world for a number of years, and we've seen them trying to build uh, a naval base in Port Sudan in, on the Red Sea coast. And we've seen them turning up much more in, in East African uh, operations of different sorts. So this ability to essentially weaponize the food supply chains means that Russia could, if they chose, uh, target certain states to create essentially a short-term food security crisis. Um, take Yemen, for example, more than uh, roughly 50% of the, the grain going into Yemen at the moment comes from, from Ukraine. That is now stopped. <laughs> Ukraine is, uh, is critical uh, to Yemen's survival. And many people did not even factor that in. That was not uh, sort of in the, the general conscience uh, prior to about last week. Um, but Yemen is a country on the brink of famine. It's got millions of people already living under famine conditions. Uh, and most of the, the food coming into the country comes through the single port of, of Hodeida and, and some of the others um, uh, along the Red Sea and, and uh, Gulf Coasts. And that, that, that is stopped. That, that spigot is turned off. That means that we have, we have a very short window to, to make up that supply for, for humanitarian reasons. If Russia starts being more targeted in its control, uh, look well beyond Yemen and look at places uh, where uh, they could essentially create um, enough of a disruption in the food supply uh, that they could essentially fabricate a conflict. Um, you know, many, many analysts continue to say that the Arab Spring was primarily born of the price, uh, the change in the price of corn. Food prices are critical for uh, being a tipping point, a straw that breaks the camel's back, if you will, when things are already tough. And a lot of uh, states are already feeling all kinds of hardship born of the pandemic and a variety of other factors. Um, and so it would not be difficult to intentionally withhold uh, grain shipments to certain countries, put them under enough strain such as to create civil unrest, maybe even uh, full, full conflict, and then be the provider uh, to relieve that tension, relieve that conflict, or keep, take them off the brink, uh, which is something that, that 
President Putin has loved to do is create some sort of uh, near crisis and then resolve it. Um, and so as that that sort of benevolent power providing the uh, relief from tension, from stress, from strain, you know, that could be given somewhat in exchange for recognition of sovereignty claims over over Ukraine or Moldova or Georgia or Kazakhstan or, or elsewhere, depending on how far uh, the, the push towards sovereignty is, is looking to go. Now, what did China really stand to gain from this beyond just securing a food supply? That's a great question, and it fits very well with the sovereignty point. I mean, part of it is is having access to uh, a supply of oil and gas and a supply of, of food. There, there are two other issues. One is um, is the sovereignty issue over over Taiwan. Um, obviously, we are in a precarious position vis-a-vis uh, a potential uh, military invasion of Taiwan, as much as, as I, I hate to even say that. Um, but it... it has been a long-standing uh, sort of push uh, of China to intimidate Taiwan and move towards uh, some kind of hostile takeover. We've seen everything from dredging sand to literally diminish the the, the area of Taiwan to uh, huge amounts of incursion into Taiwanese airspace and, and various hybrid aggression tactics. And this this sort of gray zone conflict has been going on for a long time, and it wouldn't take much particularly under the current climate, to uh, to tip into a, a more conventional conflict. Regardless of that, though, this sort of trading of sovereignty claims and, and sovereignty recognition uh, is potentially another motivation. So if Russia, another major power, uh, an, uh, another member of the P5 on the, the Security Council, uh, recognizes uh, China's claims to Taiwan in exchange for China recognizing Russian claims to Ukraine or elsewhere, that that could be a very beneficial or mutually beneficial trade. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot has been said about the sovereignty issues. And uh, China has had a, a more tepid response of late. They were initially very forthright in saying uh, Ukraine had sovereign rights and, and we, we can't violate them. Uh, but the more uh, closely aligned they have become uh, over the last few days with the economic future of, of Russia, the more hesitant they have been to be as forthright in, in saying that and certainly uh, have not been uh, nearly as critical as, as uh, I think many would have hoped uh, of this clear illegal violation of, of Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, and part of that is that Russia has been pushing this false narrative of Ukraine never having been a sovereign state to begin with. Um, and that is that is a really, uh, I think, important piece of of the Russian claim. I mean, it, it's it's bogus, it's baseless. It's sort of, a, uh, you know, we, we've long used the term lawfare. Uh, Major General Charlie Dunlap, I, I believe, coined that term to indicate the use of law and legal processes as a means of gaining what would have otherwise been a military objective. Um, this is kind of unlawfare. Um, it's using false legal arguments, baseless legal arguments. To accomplish a military objective. Um, and we've seen China do the same thing with some of their, their bogus claims in the South China Sea relating to the ability to exclude uh, foreign warships and warplanes from the exclusive economic zone. We've seen them make very bogus claims about uh, the, the sovereign rights over artificial islands. Um, but uh, th- this would be uh, sort of part of that, that hybrid warfare uh, approach that Russia had been teeing up for years. 
uh, in Ukraine to to use a false narrative as the the justification for for its action, uh, and that narrative seems to be that that uh, Ukraine never had sovereignty; it was never a sovereign state to begin with. But I think beyond this whole uh, trading of, of recognition, you know, the other thing that China has to gain from this is is potentially uh, weakening uh, the global order, such that the U.S. and and our allies. Um, are, are repositioned, um, and that that is something else that I, I think China uh, has had a tendency to to look towards and benefit from. You know, I I remember the beginning of of you know March 2020. Uh, many of us were saying that the the pandemic would change the world order and that China was going to collapse and fall. Well, they certainly haven't. Um, they just hosted the Olympics, uh, and they they remain very much a formidable. Uh, military, economic, and, and uh, global power, perhaps even stronger than they were two years ago, which is is uh, somewhat striking. And that should be a lesson in that they have they have actually benefited from global chaos. They have benefited from the breakdown of of supply chains uh, elsewhere. Uh, they've benefited from the U.S. having to fight a whole bunch of different uh, domestic conflicts, essentially, uh, in our own political system that, that have distracted us from foreign affairs and have distracted us from having a coherent global strategy. And as a result, China is, is probably not terribly uh, opposed to having uh, onward chaos um, of the sort that, that Russia is more than happy to try and create. Basically, uh, thumbing their nose at the West um, is is the the final uh, you know benefit of this, in addition to the, the trade base and the, the the sovereignty claims, and and that that shouldn't be overlooked as being a, a real draw. Leon, you've somehow remained cogent past uh, midnight your time now, as as we tip over into Saturday morning over there on the East Coast. Um, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Do you remind the listeners where where we can find you online, and then tell us about the other projects you've got going? Absolutely, uh, I'm I'm online at uh, irconcilium.com. Uh, you can find me pretty easily on most of the social media platforms, uh, be it Facebook, uh, either personally or irconcilium. Uh, same with LinkedIn. Same with uh, Twitter. But uh, right now, uh, working on a, a whole range of efforts uh, in, involving maritime domain awareness and, and continuing to try to support uh, Ukraine and the other Black Sea states in uh, the efforts to, to maintain some degree of rule of law within uh, the Black Sea. That is uh, becoming, a, a, uh, I think, a, a pressing concern because uh, of all the things that we've discussed, uh, the, the maritime space is is the conduit for making them happen. And so we we have to genuinely maintain sea control. So I don't think there could be a more fitting end uh, than, than to say that, but uh, uh, that's what I'll be working on in the, in the coming days and weeks. No, I look forward to talking with you again as, as some of these projects come to fruition. Thank you again for joining us. To listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.